During the latter half of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon served as a world-renowned speaker, as the pastor of the London's Metropolitan Tabernacle. And as is true of any faithful pastor, Spurgeon made some enemies along the way. One day, some men schemed to destroy his ministry, and word reached Spurgeon that they were threatening to smear his name publicly. And Spurgeon responded, Write everything you know about me across the sky. Now those I don't think are the words of a man who imagined himself free from sin. But they're the words of a man of moral integrity. They're the words of a man who pillowed his head at night with a clear conscience. Such integrity is of utmost importance in Christian ministry. There's an ongoing debate in our country almost humorous at times, but to what standard should we hold professional athletes? How important is integrity in their lives as they relate to this culture and people look up to them and the like? Some would say we must hold them to a high standard. Others say it makes no difference. But there is no debate that ministers of the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ must be people who remain above reproach, and serve Him with moral integrity. They're called to be models of the transformed living that their sinless Master provides to repentant sinners. They are not sinless, but they are people who know repentance and confession of sin. They're people who walk in faithfulness before the Lord. Christian leaders, Christian churches, all followers of Jesus are called by God to minister in this world with integrity. We might break that out into four ideas suggested by the text before us today, but the first area of integrity is our message. We must accurately announce God's truth. Secondly is our motives. They must be pure. They must be untainted by selfish ambition. And thirdly is our methods. We must be sincere, authentic, and honest in the methods that we use to proclaim the Gospel of Christ and to minister to people. Number four is morals. We must be above reproach. We must live lives that correspond to the law of God. This brings us then to Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. I invite you to chapter 2 in your Bibles as we turn there. And remember, as we move back again into this letter, that Paul has left Philippi after being flogged and jailed for preaching the Gospel in that city. With Timothy and Silas, he makes the 100-mile trek to Thessalonica where there was a tremendous response to the preaching of the Gospel among these believers to whom he's now writing. But persecution visited Paul in Thessalonica. As he shined like a light, it was like a summer night and the bugs just came. And persecution took place. He had to leave town quickly, we remember, and he had no opportunity at this point to return to Thessalonica. So apparently, we don't know for sure, but apparently there are opponents in Thessalonica who are using Paul's quick departure and his absence as a means of slandering him 
and questioning his integrity in ministry. Complicating the reality that he had to leave very quickly was the historical setting. As one commentator puts it, I quote, the world of Paul's time was filled with wandering philosophers, with prophets of other religions, magicians, false prophets, and others seeking not only financial gain, but also the prestige of a good reputation. Another commentator puts it this way, orators, these traveling speakers from town to town, orators were akin to the rock music legends or Hollywood stars in ancient society. Looking for cheering crowds who would be awed at their oratory. So they would come from city to city. They would make their speeches and they would seek to gain money and gain influence and prestige. And often they would deceive those that they were speaking to and then simply skip out of town. That's the setting. Paul's one of these people. He's one of these individuals that goes from city to city proclaiming a message. So there seemed to be opponents, whether there were or not. There was at least this setting historically. But apparently some were actually saying that Paul's one of those guys that simply comes into town and fleeces people and leaves. He just wants a claim. He doesn't really care about you. It's all for self. Well, the first half of 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 is dedicated to Paul's defense of the integrity of his team's ministry to the Thessalonian believers. And as we work our way through this section, the first half of chapter 2, there's four themes that are really intertwined. Now, for sake of, of sermonic aid here, we're going to set them out as developing in turn one idea after another, but really they're interwoven throughout. We find message, motive, method, and morals. All four woven throughout these first 12 verses, but something of a slight emphasis on each as the passage moves from step to step. So I'll emphasize it that way to give sermonic structure. But again, remembering, these four themes are intertwined. For his part, Paul is just talking. He's just reminiscing. He's talking to them about their relationship. He's not giving a careful development of a bullet points of integrity, but that's what comes out of it for us and what serves us here as we hear this interchange. We consider first the integrity of Paul's message in verse 1. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain, but though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the Gospel of our God in the midst of much conflict. Now you note the word for there at verse 1. It links to chapter 1. The Thessalonians comprise a thriving church as we noted last week. There was genuine faith that evidenced itself in good works. As Paul thinks about them, he gives praise to God for this. There was love that labored for others to the point of exhaustion among them in their testimony. There was hope that produced steadfastness. You couldn't knock them off their feet. They stood for Christ because there was a hope in His return and in who He is. There was a transforming power of the Gospel that was evidenced there. Their lives had genuinely changed. And that was evident. 
in this church there was discipleship. They were following the example of Paul and of these other messengers of the Gospel. And they had now become examples to other people. They had been called to a life of discipleship and they knew this. And he rejoices. He rejoices also that they had been called to a life of repentance. They had turned from idols to worship the true and living God. There had been a complete transformation of their worship. Now Christ was the Master and the Lord. And they served Him with distinction. Paul rejoices in these signs of life. And the final being a life of a focus on the return of Christ. In that life of repentance, they saw not only a turn from idols, but a turn to Christ who was coming again. And they look to His return. All of these characteristics of these thriving church is now hanging on this word for. What has happened in them is connected to the message that was brought to them and to the integrity of that message. I think is the point of the word for there in verse 1. You know that our coming was not in vain. I think what is important with this word in vain, this phrase here, is to link it down to verse 2 and the Gospel of Christ. Because we can take vain in vain. My coming to you is not in vain because it had results. Well, that's certainly the case. That's what chapter 1 is about. The results of the Gospel. But I think contextually, the idea of vain here is a little bit more than just the results. It also includes the content. Now think of it in light of the history and the background. There were those orators who came into town. They had no content. They were just saying things that pleased people, that tickled their ears. They were telling people what they wanted to hear. They really had an empty message. It wasn't going to bring about any real change. It was just going to put change in their pockets. That's about it. But he says our coming was not in vain. It was not with an empty message. That connects there with verse 2. We declare to you the Gospel. Rather than coming in vain with emptiness, rather we declare the message of Christ crucified and risen. What is the Gospel? That good news that Jesus Christ has died in the place of sinners to pay the penalty of sin. That He's risen from the dead to give life to those who trust Him. He's the conqueror of death and sin and Satan. We came with that message. That was the content. We didn't come in vain. We didn't come meaninglessly and with an empty message, but we had a message of integrity, the truth of God in Christ. As verse 2 indicates, the message that Paul declared was this Gospel. This accurate, truthful, meaningful message was preached with integrity because it was preached by men who had suffered in Philippi. Did you notice that in verse 2? The connection there. Not a vain message a full message, and the evidence is in part because we suffered. Now that wasn't necessary. You can proclaim a true message without suffering for it, but someone's suffering for it, and they suffered for it. What's the connection? Think back at Philippi. What happened? Paul and Silas were drug off the street, literally drug off the street and beaten by the crowd. Then they were stripped of their robes, and they were flogged by a Roman official. That was a brutal and torturous flogging that left them with bleeding backs. They weren't sent to the hospital. 
From there they were sent to a jail where their feet were put in stocks and where they suffered through the night by singing praises to God. But they were treated shamefully. Though Paul was a Roman citizen, and it is arguably that Silas was as well, though they were Roman citizens, they were treated like someone with no rights at all. They were treated like dogs. Beaten, bloodied, abused, mistreated, and sent out of town. That's how we came to you. And in that torture, they journeyed 100 miles, probably over at least a five-day period of time, to bring that very same message to the Thessalonian believers. People with empty messages might make a lot of money. They might draw big crowds. But when people with empty messages get beaten up and flogged and thrown in prison, they slink away. They have no more to say. That message didn't work. We'll have to come up with another one. It's people that have an authentic message that are willing to stand against the pressure and the trial. Paul demonstrated the integrity of his message by his willingness to proclaim it when he had everything to lose. In the book, Let the Nations Be Glad, an excellent book on missions by John Piper, he tells this story. In fact, quoting J. Oswald Sanders, reporting a story that he told. The story of an indigenous missionary who walked barefoot from village to village preaching the Gospel in India after a long day of many miles and much discouragement. He came to a certain village and tried to speak the Gospel, but was spurned. So he went to the edge of the village, dejected, and he lay down under a tree and he slept from exhaustion. When he awoke, the whole town was gathered to hear him. The head man of the village explained that they came to look him over while he was sleeping. And when they saw his blistered feet, they concluded he must be a holy man and that they had been evil to reject Him. They were sorry and wanted to hear the message that He was willing to suffer so much to bring to them. Captures just a little bit of the idea. Those who are willing to suffer for the message that they proclaim have a message that should be heard. Now They may be delusional. They may be wrong. But in this case, Paul says, remember, we came with lacerated backs. We were treated this way in Philippi with this message, and we came to you and we proclaimed the very same message. With the same accuracy, with the same words, we didn't bend it and twist it to make it sound a little better. We brought that same message and we were run out of town in Philippi. We were run out of town in Thessalonica. Our message was pure. This integrity of message is matched then also by integrity of motives. Verse 3. For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive. 
But just as we had been approved by God to be entrusted with the Gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. Our appeal, the reference to the proclamation of the Gospel, proclaiming the Gospel is more than simply sharing the facts of what Jesus has done, but there's an appeal in it. There's a call to the will to turn from sin, to repent, and to embrace this message. We brought that call of repentance and faith. Our appeal did not spring from error. There I think he's talking primarily about the content of his message. It was an accurate message that came from God. If the message comes from God, it can only be true. It did come from God. He knew that it came from God. And he spoke it without error was not preached by impurity or any attempt to deceive. Impurity. Nothing impure in Paul's motives for preaching this Gospel. He didn't seek to deceive. There's no place for deception in Christian preaching. In fact, the message that we hear many times in the media from popular preachers is really that. Deception. It is saying that you can add God to the shelf of idols and He'll make your life a little bit better than it already is. Jesus preached with no deception. He said, if anyone will come after Me, let him take up his cross and die. You don't count your life worthy to yourself. You unseat yourself as the master of your life and you follow Me. That's not a deceptive message. It's not an easy message. But it was true. And the followers of Christ who are genuine and who speak with integrity speak the same message. No reason to be offensive simply to be offensive. But there is a need for us to be accurate with that message and not to allow deceptive motives to blunt its edges. Paul's motive, verse 4, He'd been approved by God and he wanted to pass the test of God. We spoke for God. That's it. We weren't driven by selfish ambition. We were driven by a desire to rightly reflect the message that had been entrusted to us. Now, cynics jump in here and say, anybody who claims to speak for God is just speaking for themselves. They're just trying to control people. That's all. Anybody that says they have a message from God, particularly the popular atheists of our day, are saying it's just, it's just mind control. People saying what they want to be the case. I'd like to know, who told God He can't use spokespersons? God has every right to choose people to put His message in their care and to ask them to announce His message. Like any person in authority and power, they have the freedom to assign others the responsibility to carry their message. Who says God can't do that? He does do that. And Paul knows if I would tell you I was not a spokesman of God's truth, I would be a liar. He has entrusted me with the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the saving power through Christ. I am a spokesman for that true message. 
I am not here to please myself. I am not here to get anything out of you. I am here to witness for Christ the truth. His singular motive then, as the end of verse 4 indicates, was to please God who tests our heart. His motives were pure. His, and I can say there, as he speaks for the team, their methods were marked by integrity as well. Verse 5. And again, we'll see all of the themes working through, but that seems to be something of the emphasis of verses 5-8 through are the methods that they used as a team to bring that Gospel. For we never came, verse 5, we never came with words of flattery. As you know. Nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. We did not come with a message telling you what you wanted to hear in order that we could get out of you what we wanted. We didn't flatter you. We weren't driven by greed. We weren't using speech as a method to gain financial standing as you gave us money. That wasn't the reason. Paul preached the Gospel to enrich others with eternal benefit, not to enrich himself with temporal gifts and profit. We live in a day, even on this day, when there are those, particularly TV preachers, who are becoming extremely wealthy off of the gifts of people who do not know them. It's a cover for greed. When someone is getting excessively rich off of the contributions of people that they don't know as they use a supposed gospel telling them what they want to hear, that is a greedy person. Paul had nothing to do with that. We were not using speech to hide our greed. Verse 6, nor did we seek glory from people. It's not what we were doing. That wasn't our motivation. That wasn't our method. Whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. Apostles here I think used generically as the messengers and the representatives of Christ. Paul and his team did not preach the Gospel as a means of soliciting glory for man. And they refused then to use their position to lord it over the Thessalonians. It's not how we came to you. How did they come? They were apostles. They had been commissioned by Christ. They were here to take this message. But rather than using their position to lord it over these people, notice verse 7. Here's how they came. Here was the methodology that they used. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. This was a mission of loving sacrifice and gentle care for God's people. I heard the story of a pastor who was having lunch with a number of the leaders of his church and some visitors were with him that he apparently wanted to impress. And he said, watch this to the visitors. And he said to the leaders in his church, stand up. And they stood up. And he said, sit down. And they sat down. He said, stand up. They 
stood up, sit down. They sat down and he turned to the visitors and said, that's the kind of power I have. Does that sound like the Apostle Paul? This is a man of great influence that did this. But here we have an Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he says, here's the power that I have and how it's used. I'm an Apostle of Christ and I was among you as a nursing mother caring for her children. One of the most tender of all human images. A mother with a child at her chest feeding, nurturing, sustaining that life. Nothing will harm that child in her arms. Paul looks at his ministry among the Thessalonian believers and says, we did not come in to tell you how great we were. We came in to pour out our lives and our energy for you. We loved you with gentleness, nurturing you. His focus was not on himself. But like a nursing mother, the focus was entirely on that child. Does that mother gain joy from that process? Certainly. She gets something from it. But her orientation is wholeheartedly to give. And Paul says, that's how we were among you. Gentle. Like a nurturing mother. Verse 8, So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the Gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. The traveling orators swept into town to exalt themselves, to fleece the people, and to run. In contrast, Paul's team of evangelists swept into town to share the life-giving power of the Gospel and also to share the whole of their being. Anyone could ask them any question. Anyone could speak with them. Anyone could see in their life that they were living it in devotion to these people. They couldn't solve every problem. They couldn't address every issue. But they were there for those people. We have come to this city to proclaim Christ. We belong to You. Genuine Gospel ministry is marked by a tender love of infants in Christ particularly. You were a body of infants in Jesus. We gave ourselves to You. Body, soul, mind, spirit. We were Yours. Nurturing You to life. That's how they came. That's the method they used. It wasn't all strategizing and marketing. It was care. Verse 9, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we work night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the Gospel of God. The word for supplies the proof that they were willing to give themselves to the Thessalonians. That they were in a motherly role seeking to nurture and sustain their lives. What's the proof of that? You know how we work night and day. Now what he's talking about here is work. The word labor refers to the type of occupation that leads to exhaustion. Paul worked with his hands night and day to earn money 
in order to feed himself and house himself so that he could continue ministering to these people without putting any burden on them. Is this a traveling speaker who's just coming in to try to get things out of people? No, I work night and day. We don't know if he was making tents or if he was taking the skins of animals and creating material from those skins to make tents, but he was something of that type of industry. It was hard work. You didn't make a lot of money. But it was the kind of work, and the context of the day would indicate it was the kind of work, and it was appropriate then to talk about theology while they were working. They had to do it night and day to get with people when they were available and then to make the money necessary to provide for themselves so that we could continue teaching you the Word, Paul says. And the word toil refers to exhaustion in pursuing that kind of hard work. So Paul's method was not to speak in order to gain control and to get his hand in the pockets of people. He worked with his hands so as not to be a burden or an obstacle to any. Now there was help that was sent from Philippi, perhaps on a couple of occasions. And that support helped them to do more in evangelism, but he said, you know it, you know it, when there was no money. Now he's talking here not about an established church, but he's talking here as an evangelist. You know that when there wasn't money to sustain myself, I went to work. I worked night and day so that I could continue to be with you and to be a nurturer of your life. What a joy to think now this same church was out in the world being an example to others and spreading the Gospel from Thessalonica. But you know our methods. They weren't self-serving is the point. Their methods were pure. Their motives were pure. Their message was pure. And then their morals were pure. Verse 10, You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct towards you believers. What's he saying? You watched us live among you. You know that we were men of godly devotion and lived above reproach among you. And what you could not know about us. I mean, when we look at someone who's above reproach, in everything that we see, it seems that they love Christ, that they're being faithful to Him. We can still be wrong, can't we? You notice what he says. You are witnesses and God also. And I think it is generally the case that when all the people witness nothing but good in the life of an individual who's living in moral rebellion against God, eventually God will allow that to come out. We're not going to trick anybody. You know how we lived, and God knows how we lived among you. We were holy, verse 10. That's not the normal word for holy, but it speaks of devotion to God. Religious faithfulness to Him in worship. We were righteous. We were blameless. That was our conduct towards you believers. You know this. You remember our lives and how we lived among you. And what did that look like? Well, Many things could be said, but verses 11 and 12 answer that. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. We were in this to point you to faithfulness to God. 
That's what motivated us to be faithful to His message and to call you to that worthy walk before the Lord who calls you into His kingdom and glory. Because He loved them. Because He lived with integrity before them, He had the moral authority to challenge them to live a life of integrity before God themselves. And they did. Didn't they? Chapter 1, verse 5. Remember it? At the end of the verse, chapter 1, 5, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. You looked at our life and you followed it, and as you followed us, you followed Christ. We were faithful among you, we were true to our calling. This relationship, as verse 12 bears out, is marked by three participles. They don't come to us that way in the English text, but exhorting, encouraging, and charging. That was their effort among these people. The last of these words, the strongest, but all three words speak of a relationship in which Paul habitually persuaded the Thessalonians to act with integrity. Paul's ministry was characterized by an appeal to the will. We exhorted, we encouraged, we charged. An appeal to the will by calling the Thessalonians to live as He lived, that they might live as Christ lived. And we have to be cautious here. An appeal to the will can come across as man-oriented, as building ourselves up pulling ourselves up by our own spiritual bootstraps. That's not the idea at all. It doesn't accord with Scripture. But there is that moral appeal. There is that call to be faithful to Christ. And that call needs to continue to be sounded within the assembly that is an assembly of integrity. So these godly men, Paul, Silas, Timothy, they lived faithful lives the Thessalonians could emulate and they persuaded the Thessalonians to join them in following Christ. What we see here is real beauty. This is how it should be. There are people of integrity, not perfect people, but people who know how to confess sin, who are growing in Christ, saying to others by their life, follow Me. And as others follow, they're coming closer and closer to Christ. So Eden Baptist Church, in light of this passage, we need to value the importance of integrity in spiritual leadership. We need to appreciate it. That's not to elevate any person, but it is to say that's how Christ saved His church. What He wants it to be. He wants it to be led by people of spiritual integrity whom God is changing by His Spirit and who can be an example and a model. We should value that. Secondly, it says to us as a church that we then need to exercise great care when choosing leaders. Sometimes a joke about making someone an official in the church or giving them some leadership responsibility because then they'll come more often. Or they'll, they'll do a better job in their Christian life. And what's sad is to watch that actually happen in a church. 
people put into positions in order that the position would make them something they're not in their own character. We need to be cautious that we choose leaders with great care, people of integrity. doesn't mean that everyone who has integrity needs to be in leadership, but those who are in leadership need to be people of integrity. And we as a church need to work to that end. It's not a popularity contest. It's a matter of integrity and character. It's not charisma that matters above all. In fact, there may be people who don't have a whole lot of, a, of charisma that have a lot of character and should stand ahead of some who are simply appealing. It says to us thirdly that we need to hold our leaders accountable. No cutting corners when a leader falls into sin and is no longer above reproach. We can't do that because it's not our church. It's not a social club. It's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. The integrity that Paul showed is the integrity that should pervade in the leadership of a church. So when a leader falls into sin, there's so many churches these days that seem to just dust them off and put them back into place. And the reason is that their personality, their appeal, their charisma is more important in that church's estimation than integrity. Now, there is no place to kick a fallen leader out to the curb and forget about him. There should be a process of forgiveness and restoration. But there should never be a looking the other way. A separate standard for those in leadership will just cut them a little extra slack because we need them. The church of Jesus Christ doesn't need anybody. He won it with His blood. He's the only leader it has to have. But in His grace, He works through leadership, through fallen, sinful, weak people to build them up and to establish them to be a faithful example. When leaders fall, as Paul wrote to Timothy, they are to be rebuked publicly and held to account. We, as a church, need to do that. By God's grace, we'll never need to. But if we are called upon to do that, we need to have the moral fortitude to step forward and say it matters that leaders in Christ's church are faithful. Number four, that means that as a church, we need to be all of us involved in earnest prayer for the moral integrity of our leaders, for the moral integrity of everyone who is identified with the membership of this church. There is a satanic assault upon moral purity that is going on in all of our lives all of the time and we need to pray for one another that we would be not led into temptation but delivered from evil. And I may speak to some who have desires to enter pastoral leadership, to enter into the diaconate, those who would have a desire to teach theology on some level, those who would be leaders in ministry, let's recognize this is a high calling. 
and we must take it very seriously. To me, this isn't a sermon to joke around with. This is deathly serious. Because the Lord Jesus Christ wants pastors who nurture a flock like a mother cares for her children and who exhort a flock like a loving father cares for his family. This is not the place for those that want to abuse that flock for their own selfish purposes. Those with ambitions for leadership on any level, and I use the word ambition in the best of terms, those with aspirations to be leaders, attend your heart first. Don't work first at developing ministry skill. Work first at developing your heart attitude toward God. Nothing you learn in seminary can ever substitute for who you are as a naked soul before Jesus Christ. All the skills and knowledge in the world mean nothing if we cannot stand before Christ with a clear conscience. And this is then ultimately a call upon all of us. What hypocrisy there would be for you, any one of you, to sit here and to hear this word of testimony by the Apostle Paul and the call upon our church. What hypocrisy to sit there and say, I know that I have sin in my life, but, I, but you're saying, yes, that's right. Leaders should be that way. We as a church should hold leaders accountable. That's the way it ought to be in the church of Christ. And you're sitting there on your own sin. Unwilling to turn from it. Unwilling to repent. Unwilling to let it go. Leaders of this church and of any church of Jesus Christ are not special people. We are all sinners. We've been transformed by Jesus and we're learning to walk in dependent obedience upon Christ who sanctifies. And that's what we all should be doing. That we form such a community. That we become such a people. And that we then know how to recognize right leadership as we move forward and encourage and build up one another because your life, every one of you, matters as a testimony for Jesus Christ. It matters. His reputation is at stake. And when we sweep into a room, and we sweep into a neighborhood, into a school, into a business, into a family gathering, we don't come to proclaim a message that is self-oriented, gaining glory for us, saying what people want to hear, deceiving. We come with a message of truth motivated by our love for Christ and using methods of integrity and honesty and living a life that matches the message that we proclaim. Jesus is in the process of changing people. He doesn't put any special people in the church. He puts saved people in the church. And by God's grace, we become that kind of a church. So, where are you today 
in the area of moral integrity? Where is the battle? By God's grace, that region in our soul that belongs to us alone, where Christ is cut out, will continue to shrink under the teaching of God's Word and the edification of His people. But where is it? Root it out. Turn from it. Today, maybe the best thing that you can do is stay here after this service and pray. To go home and get alone and pour out your heart to God in repentance. There may be some here say, wow, this is a lot of heavy, serious stuff. And I know I could never add up to that. You've not come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you, you, you know it. It kind of worries you to walk among people who are so interested in moral living. Listen, it's not in you, but there is forgiveness of sin in Jesus Christ. He paid the penalty of sin, and He will give you life and victory over sin as you come to Him in dependence, seeking Him in prayer, laying down your sin and doing precisely what these believers did. They turned from idols to serve the living and true God. That is before you today. That is the appeal that we would bring to you. That you must turn from your sin or face the judgment of God. Turn today and trust Him for His grace. Let's bow together for prayer. Father, for anyone whose life is filled with moral garbage, I pray that You would allow them to be sickened by it and to turn with joy to the forgiveness of Christ. For those of us who know You as Savior and who walk with integrity in this church, may we deepen and grow. May we learn to confess our sins and our weaknesses, but I pray that we would live our lives as a model of faithfulness for others to follow, as the Thessalonian believers did, as Paul and his team did. I pray that there'd be little children in this church that look up to adults and to older children and are able to follow their model of faithfulness. I pray in behalf of those who lead in specific areas of ministry and those who are official ministers and and servants of the church and church office. I plead for each one, Father, that we would walk with integrity and that You would help us to fight sin together. Keep us from being isolated, self-serving and self-dependent. I pray that we would love one another to encourage each other in the faith. We need Your help and Your aid. We are broken people, but we thank You that You are in the business of healing broken people and bringing us to maturity in Christ. To this end we pray, pleading with You to do a unique work within us. In Christ's name I pray. Amen.